Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to be together in the house of the Lord. Brother McLean kindly sent me a text message this morning reminding me to get up on time, so I'm glad we did that. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come into your presence and we thank you and we praise you for the opportunity to come together and worship you, to be fed and chastened by your word. We pray, Lord God, that uh, as we draw near to you this morning, we would be mindful that it is only because of the blood of your son Jesus that we are able to do so. Were it not for that, we would be consumed. Instead, we have been invited into your presence. We pray that that would have a transforming, sanctifying effect on our day, on our week, and on our life, Lord God. Allow us to understand and respond um, to your word as we hear it, as we sing it, and as we speak it this morning. In the name of your son Jesus, we pray. Amen. Continuing our study in the third chapter of Malachi today, we are looking at verses 6 through 15. After a weekend of a week of celebrating expository preaching, being able to go to the Shepherds Conference with a number of my brothers in Christ, it is a, a joyful reminder of how precious expository preaching is. To be able to go through God's word verse by verse and understand first and foremost his holy character and as a distant second how his holy character ought to shape and sanctify his people. That is a joy. One of the challenges of expository preaching is we must faithfully serve up the text as it comes up. And it would happen to be that today we're served up a text on tithing. Interesting, we picked daylight savings time to talk about tithing, right? <laughs> but this text will look at and understand the holiness of our God, and, and we'll see God addressing his covenant people again in their shortcomings and his faithfulness to keep covenant. Let's read together Malachi chapter 3, 6 through 15. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. These are hard words for us to understand. We are in the middle of exploring this book that discusses God's accusations against his covenant people to honor the covenant. 
what we have here in, in verse 6 as we begin is God calling to mind his covenant faithfulness. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. What an interesting statement. We have this doctrine of, of immutability. God has not changed. God does not change. And because he has not changed, we are not destroyed. And it's interesting if you look at this, he says, O children of Jacob. This is a little bit of a change of tune from what we've seen earlier in this very chapter. We had seen God addressing the subset of the sons of Levi or the priesthood. And now he's speaking to the children of Jacob, the entire nation. And he's speaking to the entire nation and he's reminding the entire nation that he has been faithful to his end of the bargain. Now, in trying to, to help process and, and contextualize this, I would say that this conversation is not unlike being called in to the boss's office and having the boss tell you, because I'm a good boss, I'm not going to fire you. Now, your first response to being told that is, well, why would you fire me? Why would you fire me? And that's where verse 7 comes in. God further states exactly why it is that they ought to be consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. See, this isn't grounds for some sort of unfair dismissal. This is a completely warranted firing. This is a completely warranted punishment. What God is saying is, I haven't changed. I've been faithful. You have not. And he begins to present evidence to them of their unfaithfulness. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes. This is not a one-time offense. This is a pattern of falling short of covenant call. This is a pattern. This is repeated time after time. The latter portion of verse 7 says, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? What an interesting set of uh, expressions. God has stated that he has unchanged. He is unchanged. He is unmoved. He's not gone anywhere. Rather, his people have wandered off. He calls them to return to him. And these words echo words that um, we find in the book of the prophet Joel. Go with me to Joel chapter 2. We find in verse 12 of Joel chapter 2, in the midst of the people being chastened for their covenant unfaithfulness, a call from the Lord. Verse 12 and on. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering from the Lord your God. We're going to come back to the book of Joel again in a moment, but what we see here is Joel written hundreds of years before Malachi, a call to repentance because the covenant people were unfaithful. This pattern continues. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and in contributions. And verse 9 of Malachi 3 says, 
you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. This is a very interesting expression as well. So first he's, he's reminding them that he's unchanged, and because of that, they're still employed. He goes on to say, this pattern has continued for generations. You keep doing the same thing over and over again. And then he throws in a word, curse, right? We talked about curse last week. Therefore, God says, I have cursed your blessings. In fact, they're already cursed. The word curse, to, to damn, right? But it's calling to mind a covenant uh, verbiage. It's calling to mind this structure that happens in a covenant. If you do this, there's a blessing. If you do this, there's a curse. And he's calling that to mind. And it's interesting the way he phrases that. He says, you're already cursed. Now, here's the interesting thing. If we're, if we're picturing, again, this analogy of a boss and an employee, the first response of the employee is saying, well, why would you let me go? And then the boss goes through and gives infraction after infraction. And then he reminds you, guess what? You know who signed the employment contract? You did, right? Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10. We have God's covenant people. They've been carted off to Babylon because of their sins. They've been put in exile for 70 years. And then God in his grace brings them back out of captivity, takes them back to the province of Judah, allows them to rebuild Temple 2.0, right? And he allows them to be restored to him and you think that would be sufficient, right? And, and so the people see God's faithfulness, and they decide that they'd like to sign the covenant again. The last verse of, there's a couple of verses. This whole passage, 9 and 10, should be great homework for you. We like to assign homework. Let's, uh, let's start with chapter 9, verses 31 and 32. This is the attitude of God's people as they again recognize his faithfulness. They say, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, and our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. They seem to have gotten it, right? Let's skip ahead. The last verse of Nehemiah chapter 9 says, Because of this, we make firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. They renew this covenant not only just with lips, but they take care to have the, the patriarchs from each of the sets of the tribes sign this document and say, God, we understand your faithfulness, and we want to be faithful too. Chapter 10 of Nehemiah, verse 29. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. And they go on to say that they won't allow their daughters to be, their, their sons to be married with daughters of foreign gods. They won't commit idolatry. They won't commit adultery. 
and we go on to verse 35 of Nehemiah chapter 10, and we say, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. They're promising not only their faithfulness to obey, but also their faithfulness to give and to tithe. And verse 38 of chapter 10, and the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and all the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain and wine and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. They stand condemned by their own words. They signed this covenant. They signed that employment contract, and they fell short. So as we begin this passage in Malachi, the first thing we see is that God has not fallen short. He has not changed. He has been faithful. And by their own words, which they put in writing, they have fallen short of honoring God. They have not kept covenant. They would be dismissed very rightfully. How important is that for us to understand as believers When we come before God, the first thing we must understand is that because of his great love, we are not consumed. That's the first and foremost for us to understand. What's that got to do with tithing? Everything. Everything. Because we wouldn't even have the opportunity to come into his presence on our own merits. We're condemned not only by his standards, but the fact that we've signed up and said, yeah, I'll live by those standards. Right? Our own words have incriminated us. And so that's so interesting that that Malachi cites what was said just years before as the people renewed their covenant in the presence of Nehemiah. And of course, we know that Nehemiah, the the book of Nehemiah ends. Nehemiah comes back and finds that the people have grossly failed to keep their covenant promise before the ink even dried. So Malachi calls that to their attention again the messenger of the Lord. Now, at this discourse, God could go through the laundry list again of how they've fallen short to keep covenant, how they've been idolatrous and adulterous and unfaithful and all those things, but he chooses to pick one area, just one piece of evidence as to how they've been unfaithful. And what does he pick? Their generosity, their tithing. He says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you in our tithes, in our contributions? Now, there's an important thing for us to understand here, and we're going to take a detour to go to Psalm chapter 50 together. We need to understand that that the first thing that is true about this, this tithing and contribution is that it is something that is done out of an understanding of our position before God. Understanding that we have nothing that isn't his already. Whatever we give back to him is, is trivial, is insignificant. Going back to the analogy of the, the boss and the conversation, you're fired. And our tendency to bow up and say, but why? And the, the boss to take us through all those ways that we've fallen short and to get to the end of that list and have him say, but why don't you go ahead and come back in tomorrow? Right? What would our response be? We've been forgiven so great a debt that we've been allowed to come back again to work tomorrow. For us as as New Covenant believers, we understand that what has been repaid, 
what has been forgiven on our behalf through Christ is so great that it ought to compel us to respond in kind, in tithing. The other thing that we must understand is that this tithing isn't something that the Lord needs, but rather invites us to take part of. Go with me to Psalm chapter 50. One of my, one of my favorite psalms. I'm going to start in verse 4 and, and read through this precious chapter. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am, you, I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept the bull from your house or goats from your fold. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Listen to verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. What an amazing text. God doesn't need our offerings. For me, one of the the verses that I find most um, incredible in this is verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I love mountains and I, I love all that comes to mind when I think of God having a thousand mountains spread out. But curiously enough, the translation is a little um, peculiar here. Depending on what you're reading and how the Hebrew is translated, it's actually a thousand species on the hillside. So don't picture a thousand mountains. Picture a thousand kinds of animals, right? Anything, what God is saying, no matter how you translate this, is that it's all his. What's he need to tithe for? If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. There's two things that are worth calling to attention here. First of all, those animals that are, that are burnt and are sacrificed, from that, the Levites sustain themselves. God's plan from the beginning as he established his covenant with Aaron and with the Levites was that they would be sustained through the offering of God's people. And that's an important paradigm for us to understand with tithing. What we are giving isn't because God needs it, but because he allows us and asks for us and invites us to participate in the sustaining of his earthly servants. That's an invitation for us. The second thing that we see there is that the sacrifice is one of thanksgiving. It's out of a thankfulness because we recognize that God has repaid such a great debt for us that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the invitation for us to participate in, in his glory and his work is there. We ought to respond with thankfulness. The last two verses of the same chapter. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. We see this offering. We see this opportunity to tithe and to give as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. 
Returning to uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessing until there is no more need. This is perhaps a text that's widely misused by teachers of prosperity gospel. Give and receive. The more you give, the more you receive. What more can we receive than we have already received through Christ? What more could we ask for? It's already been given to us. So the response then is for us to give in kind back to the Lord. One of the analogies that I love best from C.S. Lewis is that of the sixpence. The child goes walking through the streets of London with his father and, and he sees something in a store window that he would like to give to his father. But a child, of course, has the, no income of their own. And so he asks his father for a sixpence, for a coin. And the father, the father lovingly gives it to the child and the child goes in and purchases that gift and gives it to his father. And there's the expression, sixpence none the richer. The father has nothing more than it was already his in the first place. He paid for the gift. How powerful is that? Nothing that we have to give came from any other source than God himself and his grace. And this applies to a lot of things. I'll be frank with you for a moment. For, for some, giving of, of funds is, is one thing and, and giving of time is yet another. I was uh, joking with um, Pastor John this week as we enjoyed some time in fellowship. There was a time in the life of this church where we did ministry very differently. And uh, the previous pastor asked me if I would kindly give of my Saturday mornings to take uh, groups of people to go mountain biking on Saturday morning as an outreach of the church. And I didn't want to give my time. There's only one Saturday a week. I don't want to go out with a bunch of guys who don't know how to ride fast. I didn't want to give a Saturday. For some of us, giving of our time, that's hard. Giving of our resources, that's hard. Opening up our home, that's hard. But it ought not be. Because it's all his time. It's all his money. It's all his talent. It's all his. Give it back to him as an offering of thanksgiving. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Verse 11 says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your field and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. This is a really intriguing verse. The word that he uses here is um, talking about how God will allow his people to have all that they need to be able to give in response generously to support the work of the priest, to support the, the kingdom work that's happening on earth. And he says, if you understand and respond with gratefulness, I will hold back this destroyer. And that word actually is one that we find again in the book of Joel. Same chapter that we read from towards the tail end, Joel chapter two. And we, what we see in verses 25 through 26, he, he says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. 
You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. The destroyer that he's referring to is, is probably like a locust. It's some sort of plague that ate the produce in their day. Now we know that the part of their covenant was to give the first fruits of their produce. Well, if some little bug's coming through and eating everything, right, they have nothing to give. But that same term, the destroyer, ought to bring to mind for us as new covenant believers our spiritual adversary. And God says, if you understand the relationship that we have, if you understand that I am faithful and that I am unchanging, and that everything you have is on the merits of my son Jesus Christ, you recognize that and I will restrain your adversary. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Joel 2.26 I will rebuke the devourer for you so it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and the vine of your field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And then verse 12 Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Again, the powerful term, the Lord of hosts. Little Judah, this little group, the descendants of Jacob that have just come back out of captivity and they're, they're struggling to, to understand the depth of God's promises, he says, all the nations will call you blessed. And this is one of those cases where we see the prophecy pointing not just at this immediate time, but pointing ahead to new covenant believers who will be called blessed through what Christ has done for us. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We have the better portion of two chapters in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth talking about giving thankfully in response to God's grace. Curiously enough, this connects with the sermons that we've been hearing from the book of Acts, where an offering is taken up from the churches in Macedonia to give to the believers at the church in Jerusalem. Paul talks about this at great length. He talks about how much they've given, how they've given, why they've given. Verse 9 of chapter 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for his sake... For your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Need we say any more about giving than that? He who had everything, who had deity, who is in the presence of, of his holy father, condescended to be among us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Going ahead to the next chapter, Paul continues, and he takes a, a brief time out to talk a little bit about his servant Titus, and then he talks again about this, this gift. And I'll start at verse 1. It says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that... Achaia has already been ready since last year, and your zeal has been stirred up by most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this manner, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come and find me and find that you are not ready, 
we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised, so that it might be ready as a willing gift, not as exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In verse 8, if it's not underlined in your Bibles, it's a good chance to do it. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely and he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from the confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Inexpressible! What an, ama- what an amazing text. He, he prescribes what new covenant giving looks like. Is it a tithe? Is it a 10%? Did Paul ask for their income tax returns so he could make sure they shored up and had the right number? No. And does he even limit it to money? In no way. So that all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Tithing of our talents, of our time, of our passions, of our homes, of our families, of our finances. This is all his Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. All we're doing is giving back an insultingly small portion of all that he has given us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. This this idea of giving, this idea of tithing, is about recognizing his covenant faithfulness, our undeserving status as covenant breakers, and ultimately an expression of gratitude to Christ who has paid it all for us. Go back to Malachi chapter 3 one more time. I don't want to end on, on, on this note, but the text does kind of end on a downer. <clears throat> a cliffhanger, I'll say, for next week. He says... In verse 13 of Malachi chapter 3, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said, It is vain to serve God. What prophet is keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Brothers and sisters, we live in a society that lives by the mantra, What's in it for me? What's in it for me? And sadly, that affects how we live our marriages. That might affect how we do our jobs. That has infiltrated every aspect of our thinking. And being honest, it does for us as believers too. So God begins this whole accusation by saying, I've been faithful 
you've not been consumed. And then he talks about their accusations, and then he says, give out of thanksgiving and see if I won't bless you. And then he returns to their response. You're asking again, what's in it for you? (laughs) Have you missed this entirely? And yet we do. Yet we do. How have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. We looked at Jeremiah last week when we, we see Jeremiah's complaint. Why do the wicked prosper? Why does everything go well for them and for me? Poor me. Poor me. I didn't get promoted. I didn't get this. I didn't get that. We've missed the point, believers. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The next verses, which we won't read today, talk in in, in beautiful detail about a, a book of remembrance. Verses 16 through 18 that we'll see next week are the answer to that question, what's in it for you? <laughs> what's in it for you, believer? Everything. The riches of our, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Colossians, we read, he has canceled the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands and he nailed it to the cross. Jesus paid it all. And if he has paid it all, then what pertains to him? Everything we are, everything we have, it is all ours. And he allows us to joyfully give back as a gift of thanksgiving. I'm going to end with the the tail end of Psalm chapter 50. I just love that attitude of thanksgiving with which we see God desiring our sacrifice. He doesn't need the blood of bulls. He does not need our gifts. He does not need them, but it brings him joy to receive them as a father receives a sixpence gift from his child. It brings God the Father joy. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of our God. May we give with thanksgiving because it glorifies him. Father God, we come before you and we acknowledge what has been paid on our behalf. And we need no further evidence of that debt than to recognize that in our hearts we often ask, what's in it for us? What's the point? God, I pray that you would make us ever mindful of what you have done on our behalf. May we be quick to sing your praises to unbelievers. May we be quick to thank you for the things that you have given to us. Material blessings, physical health, and most of all, spiritual blessings. God, we pray that we would respond in kind to that and that we would recognize that everything that you have entrusted to us is rightfully yours and that giving it should be nothing more to us than a joy. Allow us to to demonstrate gospel generosity. Allow us to participate in the earthly working out of your kingdom. God, as we see the Apostle Paul encouraging giving, may we also be a church that sends, that gives, that meets the needs of your saints in extending your kingdom. May we not do that out of compulsion or exaction, Lord God, but when when we do that understanding the inexpressible riches that came through your poverty. We pray that that would characterize us as as a new covenant people, that the world would, would see us and call us blessed because of what you have done for us.
May we live accordingly. Forgive us for those times where we, where we forget, where we come before you and we think that we're entitled to something. May we be reminded that it's because of your grace and your generosity that we are not consumed. We thank you and praise you. In the name of your son, Jesus.